If you tell me you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there is something I know, something else I know, that you absolutely positively believe. And you can challenge me as much as you want. I guarantee you, I know that you believe it. Doesn't matter the circumstance, uh, any other extenuating circumstances or anything else. If you tell me you believe in the resurrection, I know you also believe this fact. So think about it for a minute. I contemplated having the Jeopardy music play right now. But uh, think about it for just a moment. What could it be? What could it be? Well, I'll tell you, and don't throw anything. It's happened before. Don't throw anything, because the answer is as simple as it is true. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, you believe that he first indeed died, right? You can't argue me on that. I know for a fact, right? Because it's by definition. You can't believe in the resurrection from the dead unless you believe Jesus died. Now, to you and me, that is not a controversial answer, right? That is not a controversial uh, thing to assume. Any believer in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is probably not going to take any kind of issue with uh, me saying, so I assume you believe that Jesus died then, right? I mean, unless I say it kind of condescending like that, then they probably would. But, but you know what I mean? That's, that's no big deal to us. But as we preach and teach the resurrection, week after week, every Lord's Day, every time we come to this place and when we're out there on the streets, and I mean, every time, you know, we're always talking about the resurrection. And then here in a couple weeks, the whole religious world around us is going to be celebrating the the anniversary uh, of Jesus's resurrection. There are, though, critics out there who have come up with some arguments uh, just since really the early 1800s is really when it started. That's usually when you can tell it's not a good argument when it took that many years for them to come up with it. And let me tell you, it falls just as flat as you might think. Critics have come up, critics of Christianity, critics of the resurrection have come up with this idea that Jesus just didn't die, right? Forget trying to argue that the resurrection, you know, you know, miracles don't happen, all this stuff. What if we just cut it off at the root and say he never died? They've, they've come up with that, that criticism, uh, certain arguments. Some say that he fainted. Some say that he intentionally, you know, faked his death. Others say that, that when the, the sponge was lifted, when, when a drink was lifted to him, that, that has some kind of drug on it, actually, that made him appear dead. That's the way they word it. Those are their words, not mine. He appeared dead, but he uh, was not actually dead. And when he was buried, the, the cool, damp air of the tomb revived him somehow. Now, I have to really hold myself back from just diving into the, the, some of the silliness of that. Some of the, the things that are just totally being disregarded when you throw out something like that. Uh, but we won't go uh, in that direction right now. Come back tonight at 6 o'clock. We're going to go a little deeper, and that's when we can talk about some of that stuff. But Jesus did die. It's been attested to not just by people who follow him, not just by Christians, members of his church, but also by archaeologists, by secular historians, uh, by medical doctors, by forensic pathologists, and, and all kinds of other people. So I want to bring you a message this morning called Certainly Dead. It's, it's certain, right? Certainly dead. We're, we're starting this little mini-series just these next three weeks. Lord willing, we'll, we'll get through all three of them uh, unscathed. Uh, but, but the series is going to be called He Lives, and today's message is Certainly Dead. And I've just got a simple goal for this morning. I want us to see that as Jesus certainly died to pay for our sins, we should certainly die to sin. Pretty simple. 
Pretty simple. To state it another way, if we believe that the evidence proves clearly that Jesus Christ died for us, then there should be evidence in our lives that we clearly have died to sin and have died with him. And so we're going to discuss, the way we're going to do this is by discussing uh, some interesting reasons why we can know. We can know that Christ did in fact die. And then we're going to look at why we need to die to sin, how we die to sin, and what death to sin looks like. And we'll try to do it in short order, I promise you. Um, which doesn't mean a lot after the last few sermons. I get it, I get it. But I'm really trying hard this morning, okay? So to get us started, we're gonna, we're gonna be looking at John chapter 19, starting in verse 31. John chapter 19, starting in verse 31. We're gonna read that in just a moment, just a few verses there. Uh, but before we come to John chapter 19, verse 31, we need to just remember that Jesus has already been taken into custody, illegally tried, brought, before, uh, brought by the Jews uh, before Roman authorities. Those Roman authorities kind of did the ping pong, you know, or not ping pong, what, what is that called? Pinball. They, they've kind of done the pinball machine with Jesus back and forth because they didn't really want to deal with the situation. And they found him guilty of, of nothing, right? The, the Jews, they've got arguments, but, but the Romans, they're like, tell me again what this guy did? And they, they even pronounced him guilty. This man has done nothing guilty of death, right? So that's where he's at. Um, Pilate, a, a, Ro a Roman governor, we, we know him from this story, right? He has Jesus flogged, and he has him flogged severely. I believe, Jake opinion here, I believe it's because he doesn't want to crucify Jesus. The Bible says that much very clearly, that he didn't want to crucify Jesus. The Bible says that he tried not to crucify Jesus. He tried to release him. And so I believe that he was uh, severely beaten, flogged uh, in a more severe fashion than normal because Pilate, my opinion, I think Pilate thought he would show Jesus to the Jews and they would be like, oh, wow. And that would be enough, that that would appease these bloodthirsty Jews, but, but it didn't work. We, we also know, this is not Jacob's opinion, this is scripture, that they threatened Pilate, right? Threatened to go to his boss. You know, we have no king but Caesar, because he said, here's king of the Jews. He's like, we have no king but Caesar, they said. In other words, this guy is stepping into your authority. If you don't do something about it, we're gonna tell Caesar that he, this, we got a guy down here that's claiming to be king, and so they threatened Pilate and they insisted that he crucified Jesus. So Jesus is led up that uh, hill. He's led up to the place of the skull, Golgotha, and he was nailed to the cross. He hung there for somewhere around six hours or so. And then he breathed his last. And then this is where John chapter 19, verse 31 picks up. Scripture says there, John uh, is writing this. He says, then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. Verse 33 says, But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen has testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you also may believe. This last verse, verse 35, a, a little wordy, but, but what John is telling us is, I saw this happen. What I'm telling you about, I witnessed with my own eyes, and I'm telling you about it so that you will believe. 
Now I would submit to you that this testimony right here, uh, John's eyewitness testimony is critical to us as we ask the question, how certain are we that Jesus died? How certain are we that Jesus died? So to answer that, let's break down John's testimony in just these few verses, verses 31 through 35. Let's break this down real quick. First of all, we see that Jesus needed to be dead. (laughs) That's a weird way to say it, I get it. But it's the truth. Jesus needed to be dead according to those who wanted him crucified, right? Everyone who had a hand in Jesus' crucifixion really needed this guy to be dead, like, like now, like, like yesterday, you know? Verse 31 told us, then the Jews, because it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not, be, would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Jesus needed to be dead, his body needed to be removed, and he needed to be uh, disposed of. He needed to be put away by 6 p.m., right? Because according to the Jews, that's when the Sabbath would start, and we can't have dead bodies hanging from crosses on the Sabbath right? Never mind the unfair trial. Never mind, you know, uh, lying about this guy and illegally um, doing all those things overnight. Never mind that we're trying to get a man killed, you know, and we're trying to speed it along. But let's just make sure, you know, that we don't have corpses on a cross on the Sabbath. See how messed up their self-righteousness and their uh, Phariseeism and things like that. How, that, how that played into all this. It's just, it's kind of disgusting. But this is, this is the deal. They, they did not want bodies on crosses uh, on that Sabbath, especially since it kicked off their Passover week. So since the Jews were running short on time, as we read there, they asked Pilate to have the uh, Roman executioners go, what they all, go do what they often did to speed along uh, deaths on a cross. They went and uh, broke the legs, right? Um, Dr. Alexander Metherell says that they would use the steel shaft of a short Roman spear and shatter the victim's lower leg bones. This would prevent him from pushing up with his legs so that he could breathe, and death by asphyxiation, that's suffocation, would result in a matter of minutes. See, hanging from a cross locks your diaphragm into the inhaled position, kind of awkward. Locks you into the inhaled, and you can't exhale. Obviously creates many issues. Uh, Those of you with any sort of medical knowledge whatsoever know that if you can't exhale what's come in, then there's going to be some major problems that doing this for a long period of time is going to create, right? You can imagine um, not, not just what's going on inside your body, but what's going on on the outside of your body, needing to, Jesus, nailed through the feet there, nailed through uh, what, we would, what, what we would call the wrist, they considered it part of the hand, uh, nailed like that, having to pick himself up, having to keep moving those legs and keep moving those feet that are nailed. You can imagine the pain. You can imagine how difficult, uh, how, how excruciating, which that word actually comes from the cross uh, to describe it. It's called out of the cross. That's where we get the word excruciating from. You can imagine how excruciating it would be to move up and down that cross, to feel that on your feet, okay? So this is why he's breaking the legs. Imagine now having no ability These guys having zero ability, literally nothing to push yourself up. You've lost the structure you had down here that that could go through the pain and make it happen so you could exhale. They've lost that when they've broken the legs. So as John tells us here, these Jews, they needed these crucified men to have this done to them. They needed their legs uh, to be broken, and so that's what they asked for. Now, We also learn from John's testimony that the two criminals were not dead. The two criminals 
were not dead. Now, historians and medical experts say that men could survive uh, sometimes two and three days on the cross. Now, that would be men who arrived at the cross in better condition than Jesus did. Jesus came to that hill already having uh, suffered a severe Roman flogging, right? Uh, lacerations deep into uh, the skeletal muscles. Bones, we read, are exposed, the scripture says. Uh, hypovolemic shock had fully set in, okay? Remember, Pilate seems to have been doing this in an effort to make it so ugly, so close to death, that they might change their mind about crucifying him. Maybe, just maybe. And so his flogging was quite severe. Jesus's was quite severe. But my point in all this is that since it's unlikely that these two criminals had endured the same level of uh, pre-cross torture, we might say, and since they had only been on the cross at this point for somewhere between six and nine hours, they were not likely to be dead yet. They were not likely to be dead yet. And this is important because if we look at the fact that they didn't break Jesus' legs, that tell, and they did these guys, that tells us these Roman soldiers believed what John says here. They believed that they were not dead, neither their legs broken. They believed Jesus was dead. All right? But our greatest evidence is that fact that, that John saw the Roman soldiers break the legs of the two criminals that were clearly, to these Roman soldiers, they saw them, they were not dead. But that tells us Jesus was. Verse 32 told us there that the soldiers came, they broke the legs of the first man and the other man who was crucified with him. So as we come to verse 33, we see John makes it abundantly clear the Roman executioners believe that Jesus was dead. All right? They broke the legs of these guys because they knew they weren't. But they believed Jesus was. Verse 33 said, but coming to Jesus, okay, but, there's a contrast here, but coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now these Roman soldiers, I'll, I'll give you, they did not go to medical school, all right? They, they were um, not trained coroners, but they were experts in killing. They were experts in execution. They, this was their job, and they did their job very well. Now, we could also add to this conversation, it's not that hard to tell when someone is dead. You know, it, a little morbid to say it, I get it, but it's not that hard to tell when a body is or isn't dead. And we're talking about trained killers, trained executioners here. Uh, but on top of all that, these men had a great motivation, right, to make sure that people who they were assigned to kill were killed, were dead right? Did not escape because what happened to a Roman soldier if the person he was assigned to kill escaped alive? He was killed. He didn't escape alive. His family was shamed. Uh, they experienced shame and tragedy because it was shameful for this thing to happen if you were uh, part of the Roman military and this happened to the head of your household. It was a shame on his family and that's tragedy because you lost your husband and your father, the father of the kids and all of this. It's a horrible ordeal. They would not let someone they were assigned to kill get off alive. And so it's no surprise in verse 34, the Roman executioners made sure Jesus was dead. They saw he was dead. They knew he was dead, but they confirmed it. They made sure he was dead. Verse 34 said, but one of the soldiers pierced his side, right? They came to Jesus. They saw that he was dead. But verse 34 says, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water 
came out. So just to confirm beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus had expired, one of these expert Roman killers thrust a spear up through Jesus' side. Uh, This verified that Jesus was, in fact, as dead as a corpse could possibly be. And it also fulfilled prophecy, right, Uh, from Psalm 34, verse 20, that says uh, that, that no bone, not a single bone in his body would be broken. Right? So this fulfilled prophecy, but additionally, John shares with us some important information that, that when the spear was thrust through the side, blood and water poured out. Now, it was probably uh, what looked like water first and then blood following that, but John is writing in Koine Greek in the first century, and so if he means anything by the order of his words, maybe he didn't. Maybe he's just throwing this out here and we're kind of overanalyzing it. But in Koine Greek, in the first century, they would list things if they meant anything by the order. You know, if we we're supposed to read anything into it, they listed it by prominence, not sequence. So if there was more of something or if there needed to be a particular emphasis on something, that's what they would list first. And then later on would come the things uh, that were not as prominent or were not uh, to be as emphasized as such. Not in sequential order, not in this happened and this happened, not not chronological order if you want to say it that way. All right, so there was probably though more blood than there would have been water and so that would make sense that he would say this. Medical experts say that the extreme amount of blood loss that, was, that Jesus suffered would have sent him into hypovolemic shock. And that really is just the condition that you enter into when you have a severe amount of blood loss. Um, hypo means low. The vol part means volume and emic means blood. I, am I correct, nurses? All right, thank you. Awesome. So that's the hypovolemic shock. It's really difficult for me to get up here and say anything medical because there are, we have nurses in the, in the crowd uh, every week. Um, but, but the extreme amount of blood loss threw him into hypovolemic shock. And that shock, we're told, would have caused a sustained rapid heart rate that would have contributed to heart failure, resulting in the collection of fluid in the membrane around the heart called a pericardial effusion, as well as around the lungs, which is called a pleural effusion. So this fluid buildup around the heart and the lungs would account for what John saw as a a clear fluid, uh, uh, what he called water, okay? And then despite the fact that Jesus' body is dead, and so his circulatory system is no longer uh, pumping blood through itself, gravity does its trick to make the blood come out. He's still in the upright position, correct? So, so we have, uh, uh, interestingly, John's testimony matching up with what we know from modern medicine makes perfect sense. It's exactly what we would expect to see by the manner of death, by this spear. You know, this was not an accident. This showed us something. This, this showed us something very important. So John's testimony matches up with modern medicine, which gives further credibility to what he said there in verse 35 that he was personally there as an eyewitness. John probably had no idea why he saw what he was seeing. He just wrote down what he saw. And now it serves as uh, great evidence to us. So taking all of this into account, I I think it's evident to to an honest-minded individual that Jesus did, in fact, die. Jesus died. He died for our sins like the scriptures say he did. It's all true. The way it's written, it's all true. This is how it happened. Now we're going to talk about uh, the empty tomb. 
And we're going to talk uh, about the resurrection appearances, Lord willing, over the next two Sundays. But before we jump into that, let's think practically for just the last few minutes that we've got here. Let's think, let, let, let's get practical about what Jesus' death means for us. Having seen good evidence that Jesus certainly died, that he was certainly dead, having seen the evidence that he certainly died for us, can we in good faith point to evidence in our lives that Jesus could see that shows him we have died with him? We have died to sin. We see the evidence of his death. Does he see the evidence of ours? Now, you could rightly ask me the question, does Christ's death even require mine? Does the fact that Christ died even require a death of my own? Well, let's start by looking at Romans chapter 6. See if we can uh, pop it up here on the screen real quick. There it is. Romans chapter 6. To begin answering this question, I'm going to have to take a couple scriptures and we're going to look at something here, look at something there, and then go back. We're going to define a couple things with the scriptures. Not with Jake's definition, not with what sounds right, but with what the scriptures say, okay? So Romans chapter 6. Let me read verses 3 through 7. Follow with me here. Paul writes, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, listen to this, have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And then verse 5 says, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So we see quite clearly, okay, we're going to define something here. We see quite clearly from this passage that baptism is where we put to death the old self. It's that, it's that mile marker in our life. That is where we, we bear the old self. We die with Christ. That's, that's what Romans chapter 6, those verses we read, verses 3 through 7, say very clearly. But again, the question is, are we required to die with Christ? We see that baptism is a death with Christ, correct? Are we required to die with Christ? We'll flip over to Acts chapter 2 with me. In Acts chapter 2, the apostle Peter preaches a sermon there. Uh, this, is, this is when they uh, really in earnest go out and start preaching the gospel. I mean, this is the first, uh, what we would call the first gospel sermon. There's traces of the gospel all throughout the scriptures. But this is when it's really uh, announced to a large group of people, Jesus died for sin, he was buried, and he rose again, right? So that sermon, I don't have time to read the whole thing to you. Many of you have heard it before, but you, let me just suffice it to say. He preached the gospel, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He preached that fact and the reasons for it to these people. And in Acts chapter 2, in verse 36, we get the conclusion to uh, Peter's sermon there. And the conclusion of his sermon in verse 36 says, Therefore, okay, good preacher conclusion right there. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And there were people who were pierced to the heart by that message, the Bible says, and they had a response to that. They heard that, that their sin was responsible for putting Jesus on the cross, and they were pierced to the heart, the Bible says, and their response is found in verse 37. They said, brethren, what shall we do? If this is true, 
and we believe it is, what shall we do? And then in verses 38 and 39, you know what Peter said to them. Peter said, repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. So what was the response to Jesus' death? To the fact that our sin meant Jesus had to go to the cross. What was the response? It was baptism. And we learned from Romans chapter 6 that baptism is a death. It's a participation in the death, right? The summary of Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 39, is that Christ died for the sins of mankind, and now he calls us. He, he demands that we be baptized for the forgiveness of our sins, to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And when we go back to that Romans chapter 6 passage, we see it says that baptism, the very thing that we are called by the Lord to do in Acts chapter 2, is an entrance into the death of Christ. Not just death with Christ, but into Christ's death. Christ paid that, that penalty with his physical life, the, the physical penalty of, of death. He died for our sins. Now we receive the intended benefit of that death. He's written the check. We've got to sign the back of it before we can be a millionaire, right? <laughs> okay, that, that's one way to look at it. Uh, many of you have heard it mentioned that way before. He died, paid the penalty. Now for us to receive the intended benefit, the forgiveness of sins, and this newness of life with the Holy Spirit inside of us, now we have to participate in this death, immersed in what is a symbol with substance. Baptism. Participating in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. But... But, 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 dare I tarry on repent and be immersed, the whole sermon. That's not what it's all about. That's the last thing a sinner does. Not the first thing a Christian does. It's the last thing a sinner does. Then a new life begins. Romans 6 shows us that baptism is not just the end of a life. It's the beginning of a new life. A life that has been crucified to sin. So verse 6, pop that up there for me. Verse 6 says, and told us that our old self was crucified with him. Our old self was crucified with him. Listen, there's a reason. It says, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. So we're putting to death a body of sin so that, for this reason, so that we won't live lives in slavery to sin anymore. So that we won't live that way anymore. So we won't live like that anymore. So, so what's the proof that we have certainly died with Christ? It's a life that is lived in such a way that, that you're free from the bondage of sin. It's a life that shows evidence, fruit if you will. Evidence of having died to sin. We can look at your life and we can see that you have died to sin. That's how you're living your life alive now. It's not a physical death. It's a spiritual death. But what does that really look like? Like how, do you, how, do, how does that look in a person's life? We say we can look at it and we can see it. What does it look like? Well, Galatians chapter 5 contains a passage uh, that is quite literally intended to be kind of like a, a mirror for a person to look into and see whether their life is being lived in such a way that they're led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, or led by 
the flesh, all right? And, and, and before we hear the evidence or the, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5 that many of us are very familiar with, before we get to that, we see in verses 19 through 21, Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, that tells us uh, about the evidence of a life which is led by the flesh. So this is what it would look like for you to not be living in such a way that you are crucified, dead to sin. Paul writes to the Galatians, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, right? They're clear, they're obvious. Well, we can't really argue them. And the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. The words that are, that are listed here describe sexual immorality. Our English translations almost always cover that up. But it's talking about sexual immorality because that does happen in the family of God. It shouldn't. It's not designed to be that way. But that's one of the things that's mentioned here. Fornication, moral impurity, chasing, living a life, chasing after your, your lust. Just whatever seems like it's going to feel good, whatever seems like it's going to bring you satisfaction, that's, that's what's described here. Making the material world your, your God. Making the material world what you chase after. That's mentioned here. Uh, Non-medicinal drug use. In, that word sorcery comes from pharmakia, which comes from taking drugs. Okay? It could also, yes, have the, the idea of putting faith in astrology and, and, and sorcery and witchcraft and things like that. We also see in here being a hateful thinker. Someone with malice in their, their heart. Always thinking the worst of people. We see in here people, uh, descriptions of behaviors that have tendencies toward violence. We see greed and jealousy, divisiveness, argumentative attitudes, consuming alcohol that alters your, your mind or dulls the senses, running in groups and partying in the worldly sense of the words. And then he says, and things like these, right? Paul says, this is not an exhaustive list. Things like these. These of the flesh are evident. There's other things like these that are evidence of a flesh-led life. But the evidence of a crucified life, the, the evidence of a life that is dead to sin, the evidence of a life that is not being led by its own fleshly desires is the lack of these sinful practices within it. Right? That's what it looks like for you to be living dead to sin is to not have these kinds of things, the things that are listed and things like these, as Paul says, to, to look at your life and see that these things are not present. These things are not in your life. That's what it looks like. That's the picture. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, talking about Jesus, and he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Think about that before we even pass by that comma. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that, this is important, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you are healed. Christ died for us. We've established that this morning, right? 
Christ died for us. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. He first had to endure having his flesh mutilated by that severe Roman flogging, muscle ripped from the bone, bones exposed. He could count his ribs, major severe blood loss. And in no more than a few hours from the time when that beating took place, his body in that condition was nailed alive through what we would call the wrists and the feet to a rough Roman cross. It is no wonder that 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 22 says, abstain from every form of evil. Every form of it. With all that Christ ha- has endured because of our sin, because of my sin and your sin, how can we be involved in any form of evil? How can we treat uh, so lightly anything that resembles sin? How can we be entertained by wickedness and immorality in our TV shows and our movies and our books and our video games? How can we participate in anything that even has the appearance of evil? Some of your translations will say it that way. Abstain from every appearance of evil. How can we even look at it without disgust? Without pain in our heart knowing that Jesus did go through all the things that we've talked about this morning. Church, the evidence is clear. The evidence is clear. Jesus gave his life for us on the cross. He indeed died for our sins. The evidence of his death is clear. It's obvious. So let's respond sincerely. Let's respond gratefully. Let's respond biblically. Let's repent Let's vow to remove, to extract, to, to get rid of sin from our lives like this. Let's, let's appreciate the price that he paid instead of squandering his sacrifice. And let's live lives that are certainly dead to sin.